I'm Jeffrey Tucker, editor of Laissez-Faire Books, and you're listening to the Prometheus Unbound podcast. You're listening to the Prometheus Unbound podcast, episode three, interview with Jeffrey Tucker. This podcast is the audio counterpart of the Prometheus Unbound webzine, a libertarian review of speculative fiction and literature, featuring news, reviews, and more. And we are your hosts, Jeffrey Allen Plochet and Matthew Alexander. We are libertarians talking about speculative fiction. I'm the editor of Prometheus Unbound, an independent scholar and political philosopher, and a freelance writer, editor, educator, and web designer. And I'm the primal leading Spanish-speaking, soccer-watching, heterodox author of libertarian science fiction novel, Witherweed. You can find the show notes for this episode at prometheus-unbound.org slash P-U-P-003. Okay, so we recorded a fantastic episode with Jeffrey Tucker for you, and it's a long one, about an hour and 20 minutes, so I think we should get right to it. But first, in case we have any listeners who don't know who he is, I think we should do a brief introductory setup for the interview. Yeah, he was uh, formerly with the Mises Institute, and what was his official title there? Was he director or? I believe he was editorial vice president. Editorial vice president, and I was very sad to see that uh, he was leaving, but then uh, LFB picked him up, laissez-faire books, and he you've already seen his impact over there, and I think it's been a really positive one. Yeah, uh, Agora Financial bought the company and got him on board to help revive it, and Laissez-Faire Books is a libertarian you know, publisher and bookseller, and they've adopted a new business model under Jeffrey Tucker. We'll be talking about that in the interview. Uh, in addition to Laissez-Faire Books, we also talked to Jeffrey about uh, a bunch of other topics, you know, the role of the publisher in the digital age, compatibility of open source and business, intellectual property, of course, and a bunch of other stuff, too, his favorite fiction, and a lot more. So, so without more ado, I say we get on to the interview. Okay, uh, Jeffrey, uh, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here, Jeffrey. Uh, do you prefer uh, Jeffrey Tucker or Jeff Tucker? Is it uh, Jeff or Jeffrey? Yeah, both seem to work well enough, so either way. I, I have no preference either way. Okay, I can never make up my mind either. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a long time, you were the editorial vice president of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, but then for about a year ago, you left to become the executive editor and publisher at the newly revived Laissez-Faire Books. Uh, what has it been like switching... From a nonprofit educational institution focusing on Austrian economics and libertarianism to a for-profit publisher and bookseller. Well, you know, I mean, I think you identified the critical difference. It's it's nonprofit mm-hmm. versus for-profit, and of course, uh, this other difference is laissez-faire's mission is much broader. You know, it encompasses the whole classical liberal tradition, not just uh, what you might call the Austrian version of it. Although Austrian economics has always played an important part in the history of laissez-faire. Oh. Here we go. The train, There's the train. The train is really arriving this time. Well, since you published The Driver recently, uh, republished it, uh, it's probably pretty uh, appropriate. <laughs> I don't. I like trains. I mean, they make mm. me happy. Uh, mm. It's a funny technology. It's been around a long time, and it's still around, and it's still fairly efficient. So this will this will come and go here in just one second. Wow, that's a loud one. Maybe we should start it over. It's louder. <laughs> <laughs> And the inevitable changing pitch. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
Yeah, so it's broader, and it's allowed me uh, individually, uh, you know, just as a, a kind of an explorer of ideas to to read more broadly than I, I guess I had been uh, by, as a matter of habit. So, and I'm encountering some literature I didn't know, know about. In fact, mm-hmm. in some cases, it's blown my mind, you know, what, what has become available that's been influenced by the Austrians, but is not necessarily what you would say in the main line of the Austrian tradition. So that's been an exciting intellectual exploration for me. In fact, I feel like I'm, yeah, I never quite have enough time to dig through everything I, w- I want to read. And like every book just blows me away. You know, it's just been amazing. But the second challenge has been, you know, moving from the nonprofit world to the commercial world. Um, commercial world, you know, as the Austrians have taught, has uh, a very interesting kind of uh, signaling mechanism that's always at work. You know, direct connection with the consumer. And that unleashes all kinds of, uh, you know, information about whether or not you're doing the right thing, uh, what you need to do. Uh, it inspires a certain level of creativity. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that you might not otherwise feel if you didn't have that connection. And, of course, you've got the relentless test, you know, the balance sheet. And so there's management differences. I mean, um, at, the, at, uh, at the company that I work for, yeah, I have bosses and things, and but you know it's it's strange because the north star of the entire uh, enterprise is is profitability. That's what's what drives everything. Now, funny thing about about commercial enterprises is that you never really know the answers. So it's it's, it's there's a there's a humbling aspect to it. Nobody knows for sure uh, what caused this day's revenue to be higher than the day before, but you try to approximate as best you can with. Um, you know, intuition, and you try not to change too many parts of the uh, management structure at once. You just try to change one thing and try to look at the effects. But but even then, you don't always know. I've I've compared it in the past to kind of uh, putting on a blindfold and attempt to, and then attempting to climb uh, a mountain by holding to to rocks that you find. You know, so there's always <laughs> a reaching element to, and and, a, and an element of scariness because you never know when you're backwards and. Yeah, you know, the book industry is going through dramatic changes, and we decided at the beginning of this of this project to to get out in front of those changes rather than than you know always chasing some the change. Uh, for example, it would be easy enough for a small bookseller like us to always be complaining that too many people are buying from Amazon, and that you know try to rally the tribal instinct, like you know, oh, libertarians should be supporting us because we're libertarian. But we just kind of decided that wasn't what we wanted to do. We want to play in fair and square and and provide a, a you know great service and really win this one uh, and do well uh, just on our own terms, just by doing something wonderful. And I got to tell you, I guess it's only been about fourteen months now that we've been at this, and we're at a place now that fourteen months ago I never would have even imagined, or eight months, or even six months. I mean. There's a constant change. It's it's funny how I, I don't know if it's this way in every business, but you know, you you make grand plans on Monday for what you week and next next week, and then three months from now, and then on Tuesday, it's all blown up. Yeah. <laughs> no more. Say every battle plan is uh, discarded five minutes into the battle, sort of like that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> really weird, and and everybody's cool with that, you know. So you've got <laughs> you got to change constantly, and and. And be always on the move. And um, the other thing that I like about it, and again, I don't know if this is the way in every every company, but 
since there's no, this is a kind of an edgy company in many ways, you know, very digitally oriented and out there. Um, but uh, there, there's 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 always room for disagreement and and argument, and uh, we all argue all the time. I mean, it's been pretty mm-hmm. funny. I remember the early stages of planning for the Let's Affair Club, which is basically our profitability model. We were all in a room, and things were getting really heated, and people were getting annoyed with each other and sort of sharply attacking each other. And somebody would come up with an idea, and somebody would dismiss it out of hand. And things were getting a little bit edgy and heated, and and uh, tempers were starting to rise. And then some guy uh, took a, a, a huge box of, of foamy rubber balls and threw them into the room, and they bounced all over. <laughs> and, <laughs> And we Dissipate all, the tension, huh? <laughs> and we all broke up. And, mm-hmm. uh, okay, you know, uh, yeah. So anyway, it's fun. You know, you you do some things that work, and you do some things that that don't work. Uh, there's a love of failure uh, in in this enterprise because it's through the failures, as long as they're not too expensive, that you learn. You learn things. You learn a lot about your markets and a lot about what you're doing. So uh, it's been enormously instructive for me. I would recommend. Uh, the commercial sector to anybody, but I got to tell you, it's not, you know, it's not a cushy life, you know, I know Would a lot you call of it a high stress job. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you, um, initially I thought, Oh my God, I can't, I can't do this. You know, it's just the level of, of workload was just incredible. And a lot of it is wasted, you know, uh, because, you know, in the end of the, as I say, it's a balance sheet that matters. So you can do one, one dumb thing that's, great and then do a ton of stupid things that don't amount i mean i mean a lot of a ton of what you see as great things that don't amount to anything you know so you have to kind of figure how you use your your work time so yeah i would say it's it's kind of high stress but you know if you know business people um they sort of they sort of start to live on that stress in a way i mean it just becomes a kind of a normal routine and the stress is relieved because you always know what the goal is. You know, a lot of stress in life comes about because you're you're working and working. And you don't know whether you're you're pleasing your boss. You don't you don't know whether or not uh, you amount to anything. Whether your job really matters. That's that's the source of a lot of job stress. So commerce actually has none of that because you always know what the goal is, and uh, you have a pretty good idea of what you're doing and whether or not it's actually achieving that goal. I mean, you actually know day to day. So in that sense, it's kind of relaxing. But the anxiety that comes with, you know, fear and uh, like academics feel all the time. And the the anxiety that comes with having a a feel useless or uh, envied by your colleagues. I mean, all that stuff is, is gone. One of the things, I'm sorry, I'm not letting you ask any more questions. Let me just say. No, you're the, you're the center of attention. Go ahead. <laughs> you're more eloquent than I am anyway. So. <laughs> one of the things that I think people really get very confused about commerce, it's funny, and I, it's one thing I've, I've discovered since being in it. Commercial product providers, they all want to get along with each other. I mean, we use this word competition, and I think people misunderstand the term. You know, it doesn't mean that you hate everybody, that you hate your fellow producers or that your your goal is to crush people and destroy people that's not really it i mean the competition really amounts to a kind of uh service i mean you're competing for a customer attention and your customer base and you're always anxious to get along with people in your field and in your sector um that's always the very first impulse 
It's like, well, how can we strike a deal? You know, how can we get along? Um, how, how can we uh, make, you know, keep the peace? Um, and w- people think of free enterprises like analogous to war. It's, it's not at all analogous to war. It really is, as Mises says, it's just a form of cooperation. You can see this all the time. In fact, the most intense comp- co- competition I see in the commercial world actually occurs within firms. It's between employees. Uh, like you really strive to do a better job than you know fellow employees and stuff like that, and and you you use the excellence you see around you as the benchmark for your own uh, performance, um, and that's that's the I would say probably the most surprising thing to me that I've discovered since being in the commercial world is just how strangely cooperative and peaceful it is between fellow producers. You know. yeah, I've seen the same thing myself. I've been following some of the the top uh, podcasting coaches, like uh, Podcast Answer Man and Ray Ortega with Podcaster Studio and Daniel J. Lewis, who just won uh, the Podcasting Awards and Technology uh, category. And they're all, I mean, they're competitors in a way because they, they both uh, they all make money on consulting and and coaching people how to do, become better podcasters. And yet they're always promoting each other on their shows, cooperating with each other, and helping helping each other out. Uh, it's amazing to see you know, you know how that works out and. and when it's, it's their livelihood, and and you begin to understand something about the open source world uh, too. When you when you understand this, like I was thinking about this with the Android operating system, like why would Google have? Because <clears throat> the big operating system out there was the iOS, which is you know really contained, and the company has chosen this route. Apple's chosen this route of of keeping everything really internal and doing all this kind of vertical development, and really extremely proprietary. So Google came out there with its own operating system and gave it away, and made it open source. Well, uh, they saw, they, they clearly saw that they would benefit institutionally uh, as a business by the proliferation of and digitization of the world. You know, the proliferation of digital devices and general, you know, uh, getting the human population more and more attached to, to things. So that, that would be a benefit uh, to them. So, you know, they, they help everybody, mm-hmm. the whole world. I mean, now... You go to the store and, and dig around at the devices that are out there, and you know, like, you know, almost all of them, of course, with the exception of Apple, uses the Android operating system. I, I just think it's a it's a brilliant um, decision that stems from this realization that producers, the commercial providers, have that by helping others, they also help themselves. Um, so that's, that's an aspect of markets I think that's not well understood. Not understood uh, at all in some areas. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to laissez-faire books. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the uh, business model that you had. Yeah. Uh, could you please could you explain uh, how that works uh, for the benefit of our listeners? Yeah, I mean, it's not complicated. We, we, we work just like Spotify or uh, Netflix or any other of these things, which you know is pretty out there, I guess. And I thought about it, applying it to the ideas of liberty. So uh, what we do is we just we create a. Uh, a kind of bar where you you have a cover charge and all the drinks are free and and that's it. So we 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 you know provide all of our services behind a very inexpensive and affordable paywall that uh, people are are happy to pay to get top quality uh, books and that that inspired a lot of creativity on our part. You know what books are we going to release? There's a curation element here because of course there's no shortage of information. I mean if this were the 19th century, just providing any old books, you know, would be great. But this is the first century where people have way too many things to read. Um, 
uh, and not enough time to read them. So we saw that the curation element was very important, and then we wanted to provide the most excellent product that we possibly could. Now, going into this, I guess I'm kind of well known for my opinions on intellectual property, and it was a chance for me to show the compatibility between an open source model and the commerce. You wouldn't think that this is something that you would have to show, but Mm-hmm. A lot of confusion about the subject out there. People think that if something is uh, not using copyright, then it means it's um, always zero price or always, everything is always for free. And that's that's you know just a really a management decision. It's it's okay. What I wanted to show really was that you know you could have an open source copyright free world and also uh, have it compatible with a, 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 a commercial drive. Also, is it? did a similar thing at Mises, but uh, this was just a little bit of a tweak on the whole system. So as far as I know, laissez-faire books is the only big uh, relentless publisher that also uses the open source uh, Creative Commons model for publishing as far as we are able. Uh, so that's something that I hope will be kind of go down in history books. You know, I mean, and it was an interesting mm-hmm. thing when I talked to... Um, uh, management over at Gore Financial when this first first came along because I, you know, I said, well, look, I mean, this is very early in the in the start of negotiations over this position. I said, look, I, I, I have, I have, uh, I understand if you want to use copyright. I mean, everybody seems to in this industry, but but I don't, I don't really believe in this stuff, and I think that laissez-faire as a free market publisher, we need to be setting an example. And they were like, well, what would that mean? And I said, well, it just means that we don't deal from authors the rights to their own works, that they continue to maintain those rights even as we as they share those rights with us and we share them with the world. And that sounded a little bit strange, but they said, well, it seems reasonable that we wouldn't take, you know, authors' rights from them. So yeah, let's give it a try. So we tried it and everything's been great. Well as they for books, uh, basically you uh, sell EPUB and Mobi formats uh, ebooks uh, with a Creative Commons attribution only license. Uh, so you don't even add the the uh, commercial, you know, the non-commercial uh, no deri- no derivatives uh, tags to that license, and you also give away the books without DRM. People probably wonder how you can make money that way, huh? Well, you know, I think yeah. you don't understand um, this critique that I've made of intellectual property might might puzzle about it. It's a complicated topic. What's funny to me is just how mundane the results are. I mean, essentially, <laughs> so what people don't get the digital economy. It's not a goods-based economy. Digital economy is a service-based economy. Mm-hmm. So we say that, like, you know, we might say, well, I paid $1.25 uh, for a song on iTunes. Well, we only say that in a metaphorical sense. What they actually paid for was $1.25 for the service of delivering the song in a format that's... Um, Easy access. So... Yeah. And and that's with with every with everything in the digital world. I mean, we we talk about the goods we buy, um, but we're not as long as the goods are digital. We're not really buying the, the goods. The goods are 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 infinite. You know, infinitely scalable. So what you're really buying is, and the reason you're paying the price is that you're you're buying the the service of goods delivery. So that what that means is that you have to have the most excellent service. Uh, you have to make it convenient for people. You have to provide something that's, that's very special. Because otherwise, most everything can be pirated from somewhere. I mean, most everything on iTunes mm-hmm. can be somewhere else. Most every movie you go and see in theaters or rent from Redbox, you can get. 
um, through streaming, too. You know, so in other words, I guess my point is that as much as I talk about the evils of copyright and patent and everything, in a strange way, I don't think that they matter that much for whether a company really succeeds or not. And that's one of the things I'm I'm trying to show, I guess, at laissez-faire is that uh, we don't, I mean, that you can use a market-based model and make money too. You know? <laughs> that kind of um, half answers a question I was going to ask you. Is there any way that IP affects the way you do things now? Would you do things differently in a world without IP than what you're doing now? No, I try to just pretty much pretend like IP doesn't uh, exist. I just, I just do them. Uh, by the way, guys, I mean, a lot of, like, it's a little funny how entrepreneurship works, but because a lot, I've noticed that a lot of really great entrepreneurs and great companies misdiagnose the source of their profitability. Um, hmm. I would say that even Apple does this, but here's my most recent example that came to me. By the way, I noticed this years ago because I knew the, I knew was, I'm good friends with a guy who came up with a recipe for um, Moose Tracks ice cream. And uh, he, he's, he heard me lecture a ton about IP. And every time he's just seething, you know, like in anger about this. <laughs> <laughs> nice guy, but he gets furious because he says, look, if it weren't for uh, intellectual property, I'd be out of business. I've got my, my machines are patented. My recipe is, is, is copyrighted. You know, every, my, my, my name brand is, is trademarked. And he spends like 90% of his time like hammering down, you know, fake moose tracks ice cream. You know, it's like. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Is that innovating a new recipe or something? So if somebody comes out with like cow tracks. He was like, hey, hey that's too much. And goes to the courts. And it's like, what? I, uh, oh, yeah. And it was funny because the Bluebell ice cream. <laughs> I sent him a note about this when I saw it. In fact, they shot an iPhone picture. I was at uh, uh, the grocery store and I saw that uh, that Bluebell had come out with a new flavor called Happy Tracks. <laughs> so, the tracks has nothing to do with cows or mooses or anything, right? I mean, it's like it's too similar. <laughs> Was that trademark dilution or something? <laughs> There's nothing he because, like, he had killed like cow tracks and you know several other things, turkey tracks or whatever. But he killed most of the courts, but he couldn't he couldn't kill happy tracks. It's like happy. <laughs> but of course, when you're buying happy tracks, you know you're buying moose tracks, right? So, <laughs> I shot him an iPhone picture. I said, "Hey, look at the pirates! Are you know, they're going to beat you." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I've been telling this for years. I said, "Listen, guy, you know, uh, uh, you're a good friend, but you don't understand why people buy your ice cream. People don't buy your ice cream because you have a you have a monopoly. You, you know, they buy your ice cream because they like it. I mean, because you, you're providing a, a cool service and a good flavor and an ice cream that people like. I mean, you're you're a businessman. You're an entrepreneur. You should know this. People are are buying your stuff because they like it, not because you have a government monopoly. There's a difference." But he's like, no, no, I would be, you know, totally. This often happens with people when they get a, a monopoly. They think that the, or when they when they become a dominant player in an industry, they imagine that they uh, that they're sunk. Yeah, you know, because I mean, they're surrounded by competitors all the time, and they fear them in a way. So they glom onto the government and say, "Protect me from my enemies," you know. But the most recent example I saw of this was, um, I don't know if you use the Keurig coffee uh, maker. Uh, uh, no, I don't. I don't drink coffee, but uh, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's a very interesting company because I mean, it's really an entrepreneurial thing. I mean, they they saw that that um, it's actually is it marginalist thinking that led to this innovation. They said, you know, when people people want coffee, they don't want a whole pot of coffee; they want a cup of coffee. 
So if we can just invent a machine that makes one cup of coffee, then that'll appeal to people, really. And so they were able to charge like 50 cents a cup on these Keurig uh, cups. You put the thing in there. I mean, this stuff is ghastly expensive. You think it would, it would never work, but it does work because people think about on the margin. They, they drink coffee on the margin. They think about the one cup. They don't think about the pot. So, um, so Keurig came up with very expensive. You're paying, you know, $100 for the coffee maker and 50 cents for each one of these stupid cups. And you think, not going to work. Well, it did work. But they got a patent on the Keurig uh, cup on the shape and whatever, whatever, you know, patented, you know. Well, the patent ran out and it was 50 cents a cup and people were all over the industry were expecting that when the patent ran out, the price of the Keurig cup would fall to uh, the same level as it would if you bought a, a can of coffee and made them, you know, one at a time. So, you know, on the date that the patent expired in 2012, I think it's January 1 or something, maybe it was January 7, 2012, uh, the Keurig Company, the company that owns Keurig uh, Coffee Maker, their stock price plummeted. Everybody's in a panic. Everybody's screaming. Well, here we are, twelve months later. Now everybody's in the business of making Keurig uh, K cups, Keurig cups, and incredibly, they're still fifty cents a piece. That's the market <laughs> range between like forty and sixty, but you know, there's mm -hmm. less than that same range. So it's a, to me, it's a good example. Because what happens a lot of times is the businesses misevaluate the source of their, their profitability, especially when IP is around. So people think the reason I'm making money is because those governments give me a monopoly. The reality is people are, they're making money because people are willing to pay for their product. And you get other comp competitors into the field, they also want to charge the highest possible price. And if consumers have been paying that up to now, I mean... Very example illustrates that there's a good chance that they're going to continue to be willing to pay that in the future, at least for a time. You know, we'll see what mm -hmm. hiccups in the future. And I don't think anybody can predict this, but I don't think that the world would operate that much differently in the absence of IP um, than it does now. The only difference was that we would get more and better competitors out there providing more and better products, and we'd see a faster pace of development. Uh, to the extent that uh, someone is making money because of IP, that's also economic dead weight too. That's something that should be cut off. Yeah, yeah, a lot. You know, and a lot of the companies that do make a lot of money from from, uh, from IP, if that's the source of their profitability, aren't actually selling to customers; they're selling to like governments and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And in the real world, you can, you mean that's a bad bet. You know, I I became to you know believing that that you can just live off IP forever. I became a little bit bearish on Apple. When they started going after Samsung so uh, so viciously, really and pointlessly, uh, you're like, what do you? What is it you hide? I mean, what are you trying to hide here? What what what's the problem with your product that you think that you have to take recourse to the courts? I mean, how great is the stuff? How how fabulous is the stuff that your competitors are offering that you want to want to keep it keep it away from customers from? <laughs> Well, the iPhone uh, has barely changed in the past few years, whereas Android has grown by leaps and bounds and passed it up in many ways. And, and I think Apple sees that and they know they can't keep up anymore and they've become another niche product like they were with Microsoft. Yeah, I th yeah. think it's really true. I think it's really true. So it's really, we don't know uh, what the effects would be, but in a strange way, I would say, you know, the biggest problem with IP is that people overinflate its importance, really. And, and, and it distorts markets. It also prevents people from coming up with good, innovative solutions. This is especially true in the publishing world. I mean, I think by now, if we hadn't had copyright, we would have had a better 
delivery systems for books than we do already, and a better way for authors to make money from books, like advertising in books, maybe the paper ad. You know, I mean, we'd see other innovations. What um, this is exciting. I mean, just this afternoon, um, I saw the first laissez-faire book, EPUB, that's got AV embedded in it. So it's my book, The Beautiful Anarchy. And what they did was at the beginning of each section, they embed within the EPUB a uh, a video. So you're on your iPad. You're not, not even connected to a wireless system at all. And you can click. You get to the beginning of the section. You can click, and there's a little movie where I'm explaining the section and why I wrote it and why I think it's important. That's pretty neat. And I think um, people, for the authors who uh, thrive on their connection with their readers, that'd be a very good way to, um, you know, to to uh, improve and increase that connection with their readers to to uh, build a deeper bond with them. You know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, my job was just on the ground. I mean, I they sent it to me this afternoon. I ordered it a couple of weeks ago, but I was a little, you know, doubtful this was actually happening. You know, who knows? But and sure enough, this afternoon they're saying, "Okay, here's your product." And I opened it up, and I'm like walking around with my iPad. I turned off the the Wi-Fi, and I'm watching myself introduce the second <laughs> book. It's just the weirdest thing. Mm-hmm. Like the difference, <laughs> a little bit blurry now. You know, it's just. Oh, weird. Anyway, I was thinking about this. I thought, well, you know, what if uh, an author released a book that had uh, audio in it, and you clicked on there, and for each audio, you, just like on YouTube, you watch, you know, like a 12-minute ad or a 12-second 12, 12 ad or something like that. And mm-hmm. then the author gets the ad revenue for ads that run in real time on the book. I mean, that would be a great way to fund. And then you can, like, maybe... In that case, the authors authors would be giving away their their works for free. In fact, they want to give away more so they can yeah, being paid by the advertisers. Yeah, advertisers. you're you're horrifying the high minded uh, artistic types right now. <laughs> 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 Ads in the book are going to be product placements next to. <laughs> you're going to mention Coca Cola in the book just because you're being paid by Coca Cola. <laughs> That's horrible. I'm <laughs> slamming. <laughs> <laughs> So, Jeffrey, have you always been anti-IP, or is this a realization you've come to over time? What would you cite as your influences? Well, you know, it was, it was funny how this happened, because uh, I think like a lot of people, I didn't, just didn't think that much about it, you know. But uh, if, you heard, if you hear the phrase intellectual property all the time, you think, well, that's property, right? So you just don't question it. <laughs> uh, it's a great propaganda term. <laughs> yeah, it is, right? And, and this definitely, I'm not... I think, well, I had read some criticism. Of, I just didn't think about that much. You know what I thought? I thought it was one of those one of those dumb libertarian topics. You know, who owns Mars? Or, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, there's a lot of like far-flung topics that seem to kind of, like you can think about them, but maybe it's a waste of time, you know? So I kind of thought that it was one of those. And then Stefan Kinsella came out with this article, I think in like, or was it in, in the 90s? Or, no, it was in 2000. I don't remember what year it came out. But, and I read the article, and I thought, oh, for God's sake, you know, why is this guy? And I didn't really know Stefan at the time. I thought, what well, this guy's going on about this thing? This is just weird. I mean, it's just a little bit embarrassing, really. And, uh, fringe topic. Yeah, I mean, I was just <laughs> like, was not thinking about it. I thought, well, whether it's true, I think what I was thinking was whether he is right or not, it just mm-hmm. doesn't matter. That was my, I think, my outlook. Yeah, this was in the early days of the internet. Uh, well, the 
before the you know, huge explosion of the internet, I guess. And uh, so it's not as readily apparent then that it was how important it would be. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. Yeah, it just didn't. It just didn't seem like the, the important thing. I mean, you know, like even Hayek, even in law, legislation, liberty, and constitutional liberty, has some tossed off remarks. You know, that in a free market there wouldn't be patent or copyright. But he didn't really dwell on it because it didn't seem, for some reason, it didn't seem that important. Although I think it probably was important. We just didn't know how important it was. But you're right. The digital invention of the digital world, you know, kind of makes this extremely important to us. So then, like, gradually over time, I began to think about it more and more. But it really took the book by Bulging and Levine uh, called Against Intellectual Monopoly to really change everything, to change my mind completely on the subject. Because that, that, that book, you know, applied these lessons in a very practical way. And I suddenly saw, really, for the first time, that there's profound practical implications day to day with this topic. Um, that it really is a kind of tremendous cost imposed on the economy and that markets can work without them, you know, fashion industry, the recipe industry. And yeah, their book is, it's, it's a book by two neoclassicals, but it's really kind of real world. And that's the book that got me really excited, um, not only because of how it made me think about the subject of IP, but because it opened up for me intellectually a new way of thinking about markets. Before, I don't think I had understood entirely the way the markets are kind of the great pedagogue of the globe. They're always teaching us things. You look outside the window and you see tremendous examples of success, for example. Uh, every successful enterprise gives away its key to success. We're successful because we're selling delicious hamburgers. You know, we're successful because we're making cool computers. So they're giving away their secrets and you learn from them. So they're kind of like constantly extracting this information and using it as a way of creating a kind of relentless progress. Uh, and so then profitability comes about through emulation and tweaking at the margin. So the IP studies kind of opened up this new vistas of understanding how and why uh, freedom actually works. And that's, that was a real big moment in my own life to kind of see this, the, the, the element of, the, of, of learning that comes about through Marcus. And I began to kind of dig through the works of of Hayek and, and uh, Mises and, and Menger and Adam Smith and, and just see to the extent to which our tradition has really dealt with this. And my strong impression was and has continues to be that we really haven't dealt with it that much. And yet, it's a major feature that the market, you know, offers, you know, this kind of constant um, uh, teaching element that goes. So in every lecture I ever give now, I describe uh, markets as places of cooperation of competition but mostly of teaching and learning and we'll link yeah, to that book because that is i read that book as well and that is an excellent study about the whole issue yeah. with real yeah, world that, examples and everything yeah i think i, I think of ip as a it's a form of protectionism that uh, limits the spread of ideas the propagation of ideas not only you know, throughout culture in our own time period but also there's a propagation of culture down to the next generations it limits um, you know, social progress. Yeah. Um, and, and it's devastating in a way because, I mean, 
what are ideas? I mean, ideas are the most powerful thing that exists, more powerful than any anything physical, because ideas are immortal, they're they're infinitely malleable and scalable and reproducible. I mean, they're the things that that build civilization, that animate our world, that that cause us to you know that that are the the the, the fuel and the energy for for how we act and what we do and determine our success and failure and and life and our success and failure of civilizations and societies. So. Crushing an idea is uh, murderous, you know, in the extreme. And, that's, and we're lucky that they're super abundant and IP tries to make them scarce. Yeah. Yeah, it tries to make them scarce and it try, tries to make them mortal instead of immortal. Or, or another wicked thing is it tries to make them uh, stable instead of malleable. You know, where and ideas have to change. They have to grow. They have to be added to all the time. And and stretched and mixed, you know, that, that's where ideas become really, really cool. And IP tries to stop all that. It's a, it's a little bit nutty, actually, think about it. Yeah, you kind of touched on this already, and I was going to ask the question about this webinar that you held recently on uh, how enterprise can survive the death of IP, in particular in reference to, uh, you know, the publishing and film industries and for writers, uh, since that's, you know, that's what our podcast is concerned with. Uh, is there anything more that you'd like to say about that, or do you think you think it covered enough already? Or? Well, I, you know, um, I, I would only say this: that I think the death of IP is inevitable, and in fact, I think we're seeing it around us um, all the time. I'm really, I know probably more about the music industry than any other form of art, and you know, I look back at the sweep of of, of music history, and what you see is you know, brilliant and creative forms of imitation. You know, it began in the first millennium, you know, where the, at least in the West, where you saw the first, you know, Gregorian chants uh, uh, composed, memorized, usually not written down, and then uh, people would listen to them and memorize and commit them to the memory. And then certain nuggets of chant, you know, would be passed and borrowed from other chants. And you can see these. I mean, great musicologists have seen this, that they're, are formulas that developed over the centuries because of people copying and improving and changing to ad adapt to the particular purpose of a chant. And then, I mean, that's going back to the first millennium. You, you see this relentless copying. And then uh, you began to see it, you know, in the second millennium with the, with the addition of uh, organ. People would go into a great cathedral and hear the chant so echoey that it sounded like two or three voices going on at once. So the composers would copy that sound and actually embed that into the music and that's how we got mm. there of polyphony and then polyphonic composers would, would uh, borrow ideas from each other and we saw this gradual uh, thing being built up it's like stones of a cathedral getting higher and higher and higher and moving all the way to the modern age you know we saw you know Bach borrowing from books to Huda and Everybody by borrowing from Vivaldi, taking his violin concertos and turning them into choral works, and you know, Bird borrowing from Talus, and so on and so on. It, it's just it was it's a beautiful thing to see this this construction of this edifice, you know, piece by piece. And then, and and on the continent, there wasn't even IP as late as uh, you know, of course, uh, Be Beethoven, but even as late as Brahms, you know, you didn't see any intellectual property in his works, you know the composed and the, you know the the way that all these composers made money well there's many ways but if they made money from competition it was because they gave their competitions to particular compositions to a particular publisher when it came out and they get the first uh, run of it you know the the ability for surprise 
The first mover advantage. Yeah, first mover advantage. Yeah. Just like fashion today. I mean, that's why, you know, the designers, you know, hunker down in secret and, you know, design their dresses and mm-hmm. they release them on the big runway with the music and the fan cameras. Two <laughs> months later, you know, I mean, but, but you have to rely on that first mover advantage. So that's how the composers made money. Then you get to the 20th century and suddenly you get the, the international imposition of this copyright stuff where the ethos was. Every new work must be totally original. What the? Heck? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what? what? That's never happened in the whole of history. That's just terrible. So then, so people are like, "Wow, well, what am I going to come up with?" Well, then you hear some pretty weird stuff coming out. <laughs> it's the serious music world. Uh, <laughs> really happy music. I mean, stuff that nobody even wants to hear. Year. I mean, maybe it's intellectually interesting, but you don't actually want to hear this stuff, you know? So it took, after um, World War II, I would say the first big break in this idiotic ethos of uh, banning, you know, the imitation of others was um, in the jazz world. So, you know, you had the uh, advent of bebop, you know, coming along, uh, where they were like open musical communists. So they would improvise, they would share all their tunes with each other. They wouldn't even write them down. They would just share them with each other, and they would copy each other's licks and motifs, and they reveled in this. And, you know, uh, that Charlie Parker, Miles Davis generation was like a recreation of the Renaissance composers of Bird and Palace in the sense that they, they wanted to be copied. I mean, they wanted to do some things that would inspire others to imitate what they were doing. So there was this kind of left wing what they used to you know consider to be kind of left wing attitude you know that we just share all of our music and then rock and roll comes along similar kind of thing of course over time the industry's got involved you know everything was copyrighted you know by the by the 70s and 80s industry had sort of invaded the space and frozen it yet again so moving up to our times now i'm extremely impressed with all the trends i see i mean two years ago if you try to do a parody video or sing some popular song on YouTube, they would slam you. You know, you know, a couple of years ago, they were taking down videos of, uh, you know, kids singing Madonna songs, you know, and taking out the audio. So the kids were just going. <laughs> you know, the silent video. <laughs> I mean, here we are, January 2013. Uh, parody videos are all over the place and even the real mm-hmm. are, are everywhere. Uh, imitations all over the place. You can't even come out with a song without two days later. You know, some, something's rising. Mm-hmm. You're going to see a million parodies. It's beautiful to see. And industry has kind of gone, you know, it's not such a bad thing, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's free advertising. And some stars even come off of YouTube, like uh, Justin Bieber. What's a Bieber? As Ozzy Osbourne says. There's <laughs> 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 a commercial with Ozzy Osbourne. He goes, What's a Bieber? <laughs> I haven't seen that one. <laughs> That's funny. No, the ad- YouTube stars, one of the greatest. I'm so inspired. I've been looking at um, the life and story of a, a interesting violinist named, by the name of Lindsay Sterling, who studied violin for 12 years and then looked at a sea of violinists who are better than she is and decided she had to invent something new. So she recreated herself as the hip hop violinist, you know, and started. <laughs> Uh, started doing these cool videos and stuff. Went on America's Got Talent, and they kind of poo-pooed her. And she said, hey, what the hell are these people? I'm just going to start my own YouTube channel. And now she's like gigantic videos, millions and millions of views. She's touring the country. She just got back from a European tour. Now she's touring all over this country. 
fans, like, I don't know what. I mean, there mm-hmm. this is a tens of thousands of comments on her videos. She's a, a, a really nice, cool person, but she's reinventing the use of the violin. She's making violin, you know, playing super marketable. And she did it without any of the big shots, without the industry, and even the big critics kind of, you know, denouncing or whatever. She had guts. She's an entrepreneur. She's out on her own doing this stuff. So, I mean, this is what technology is making possible, in, at least in the music world. You know, we're seeing... We're seeing amazing things happen. I mean, and again, it's happening because of the breakdown of the intellectual property system. I mean, so far from having hurt uh, the arts, at least in, in music, it's, it's vastly helping. I mean, like really helping. It's, it's been a, the distribution of, of classical works online. Wow. Let's say it's made symphonies viable again, so they don't have to pay these outrageous licensing fees, and they can just download the music online. And choral groups are doing the same thing. Composers are releasing their stuff online for free and uh, then getting commissions as a result of it. There's many different models. But what's neat to me is that the breakdown of the intellectual property system is unleashing all this incredible creativity with so many different models of, of profitability and pouring great new creative art all over the world. Speaking of uh, in that positive outlook and creativity, you mentioned to me uh, in an instant messaging chat last week uh, that you and Doug French had recently written a book, uh, I think it was in two weeks, that's amazingly fast, uh, where you explore an alternative to the usual methods of electioneering and negative political discourse and education for promoting liberty. Uh, as I recall, I think you draw on the inspiration of Ayn Rand, and uh, the book is about what leading, as an, leading by example and finding ways to expand liberty in our own lives. Uh, could you talk about more about that? Yeah, this was the real revelation to both of us, was we began to rethink, you know, the whole history of the libertarian movement. And he's always been kind of uh, devoted to Rand in, in a way that I haven't really been. But um, we both began to kind of think about what it is that Rand added that made the difference. I mean, her book, Atlas Shrugged, you know, it coincides with this incredible flourishing of creativity and energy and fire and uh, the, the uh, world of, of liberty. So you can see it from Rothbard's review of Rand's book. I mean, he was just, and Mises' too, and many people, you know, they were just transformed by it. And why was it? It's because it's a novel? Well, you know, maybe that's part of it. Maybe the characters, I don't know, her philosophy or message, everything plays a part. But I think we were trying to really isolate what, what made that book different. And I think the, the answer is that she had a personal message for every reader. And it was that nobody should be allowed to stop you in achieving your dreams. That no matter what condition or whatever, whatever the circumstances are in the world, you can be heroic and you can do amazing things and you can configure your life and, const- and construct it in a way that enables you to be a great person right where you are in your time. And everybody closes the book and people imagine themselves to be uh, one of the heroic characters and not one of the, you know, bad guy characters in the book, you know, and that's really great. So, I mean, that, that's what she added that I don't think anybody before her had ever really done to the same extent, you know, provided this kind of intellectual, psychological rationale for being triumphant. And I think that in the, her book for a reason, because she herself had sort of lived an incredibly heroic life, you know, being born in, in Russia uh, to, you know, bourgeois parents at the, you 
know, at the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution. I mean, she was definitely doomed, you know, as a as a person, doomed to to do nothing, really, to be maybe killed. You know, who knows what would have become of her? She, but she she got out a very clever clever way through a series of you know lies about I don't know, it's, I forget now what the precise details were about how she got out. But she got out, arrived to her penny list, went to Chicago, didn't really like it. She was like twenty. Um, then decided to go to Hollywood and became like this Hollywood writer and then left that and began to write these novels. And, you know, over time, for God's sake, this little, little Russian bourgeois Russian girl slated for, for nothing in life became one of the 20th century's great, you know, intellectual figures without an academic position or even advanced, advanced training or anything else, having pioneered a new way of uh, talking about uh, central issues about society and individualism and the future of civilization. I mean, she's a she's a. I'm in a weird position of admiring her more as a person than as a novelist. Everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we began to think that maybe this message, which is so often missing in our world, is what's is what what needs to be picked up again. You know, and because most people think about the job of libertarians as blogging and denouncing the government and holding seminars explaining why the government's no good or maybe getting involved in politics all the time or something like that. But it's a little bit strange because, you know, what if it turns out that nothing we say or do in our lifetime actually has any influence over direct, direct influence over the way the state conducts its policy? I mean, in other words, what if the government doesn't really care about what we say? <laughs> That's not hard to imagine. <laughs> Radical idea. <laughs> what if the Department of Labor doesn't actually fear your next editorial on the minimum wage? <laughs> <laughs> if your cat laughs at you. <laughs> what, what if the Pentagon isn't really... He denies your application. <laughs> like the Iraq I mean, what, what if just positing this possibility? The question is, what are you going to do with your life? And I think Rand's answer would be, you're going to survive, you're going to thrive, and you are going to do amazing things regardless of what barriers are in front of you because it's your human right and because that is what's really sustaining. Because your life is the most important thing and, uh, you're, and people, you, your behaviors and people like you are the people that are creating a world in which mankind can thrive. You're the great heroes. And I think, I think we need to recapture that spirit. So we wrote this book, Doug and I, over the course of two weeks, in which we took like 12 areas of life, from, you know, from personal finance to education to you know, jo job choice and pr profession, and tried to think of ways that individuals right now can do things other than just denouncing the government or getting involved in politics, which I personally feel like is a fruitful endeavor. And we really dug deep, you know, and we thought about it like, well, listen. You mean, fruit, you mean fruitless endeavor? What? You, I think you said fruitful, but you mean fruitless endeavor? Okay, I meant fruitless. Politics is rather, rather pointless. I mean, the political parties are basically public-private partnerships that, you know, don't invite us to be part of them, you know. Uh, I, don't know what, I, don't, I don't know what the point of all that stuff is. So we tried to find, like, a third way, uh, a way that, that, that people can do great things in their own life to advance liberty, first for themselves and also for them, others they love, and then also by way of example, to the whole of society as a way of kind of building up alternative structures so that we'll be ready when the, when the state finally 
you know, fizzles out, crumbles down, we'll have something to displace it so that they're real and substantial to replace the state when it, when it falls, which I believe is going to. So I think this book is really important. It doesn't have all the answers in it, but it, we arrive at some pretty interesting... And once we began to think along these lines, it really became rather easy to write. You know, it just pour out of us. So there's kind of like two aspects to this then, uh, personal self-fulfillment and a kind of white, white market agorism then, the activism. Yeah. Uh, they kind of combined into one, you know, one endeavor. Yeah. Oh, revolutionary, you know, activism mm -hmm. or something like that. That. Yeah, so we're not, we're not and, and nothing, this is what's interesting, we set out also, to, uh, all the stuff we put in the book, we said, we will never directly urge people to break the law, directly. And it turns out the more we thought about it, a lot of what the state does to us is not usually with a gun to our heads. It's not usually, a, you know, the cop, you know, bunking us or tasing us all the time. A lot of what the state is doing is just kind of nudging us very firmly in a certain direction. But that doesn't mean that it's mandatory. It just means that it's strongly encouraged. But you still have the freedom to do something else. So it's a matter of kind of becoming conscious of those nudges. What is the government wanting to do, want me to do, um, that I don't, that are not really in my interest? and can I take a different path and do better for myself and others by, by choosing that alternative path? Now that's kind of interesting because as libertarians, we always focus on how everything the government does is backed up by a gun. So what are, what are some examples of these strong nudges that you think the government is uh, trying to give so us? Like one nudge would be uh, to go to um, uh, public school. Okay. They, they make it, like really seem to be really advantageous for you to uh, hang out in the public schools for 12 years uh, at a desk listening to a teacher drone on. You have to, you have to pay for it uh, directly because it's being paid for by your taxes. And it seems like it's free. It right? seems right. Socially, it seems cool. Hey, well, if I just do what, what I'm supposed to do, surely I'm mm -hmm. successful. Well, guess what? It's probably not true. So, you know, there mm -hmm. are... There are compulsory laws, but there are compulsory expense laws, but there are many ways to get around them too. Private schooling, homeschooling, uh, you know, tutorials. And just, just waking up to that realization is kind of amazing. Or, you know, there are other things like the system urges kids as soon as they graduate from high school to immediately go to college and take out a big loan. Okay. You know, it's like not required, but it's strongly urged on us by the political culture. Well, what if, what if in, instead of doing that, um, you take off, a, take off a year to accumulate you know, some savings and get some commercial experience and, and begin to realize the value of time and the, and the relationship between work and reward? I mean, this is something. Or, or what if you know, you've got an extremely smart kid who starts uh, high school at the age uh, as, a, as a freshman, it turns out to be you know, pretty extraordinary in every way, but kind of feeling unchallenged you know, in the school? Uh, why not pull that child out and put that child in uh, college right away? In other words, there's, there's other, going to college at age 14, for example. I mean, there's nothing to actually stop us from doing these things, thinking outside of the mainstream. But we tend to resist them because we're a little bit afraid of, you know, what could go wrong. So um, another one would be like, every time there's a crisis, there's a president who gets on television and says, the way that we as a nation can conquer this crisis is by you going out and spending a lot of your money on goods and services. I mean, that, 
It's amazing. I mean, so we got the president telling you to go out and go into debt to help the economy. Well, it's bad for you personally, but he's telling you you should go out and do this. Well, so the book is pointing out this is not required of you. It's just something people are urging you to do. It's like a strong nudge. You don't have to do it. That, that's, those, those are just three examples of many. Are you planning on publishing it uh, through laissez-faire books or independently? Or how soon could we expect to see the book out? It's called, um, the name of the book is um, Who's Going to Stop You? Hmm. That's a good one. That sounds like an Ayn Rand phrase. Too. Yeah, yeah well, it is. <laughs> and, and I really yeah. like it. Man, it. It jazzed me up a lot to work through this. And gosh, we came up with so many wonderful examples. But anyway, yeah, I think um, we're going to release it as a, as a club premium. Uh, and we're... We had the first draft on it, but now we keep adding to it. Uh, the section on professional life is particularly interesting for me because, and I kind of marched through this history, you know, a hundred years ago, a job was no big deal. It's like you go to work, you get your money, then you, like that, that was the whole thing, right? Like you were paid in money and then you could quit your job and get more money elsewhere. So that system doesn't exist anymore. Now, so much of our, our remuneration occurs in the form of these benefits that aren't really benefits to us. And mm -hmm. The system is kind of locked down. We get a lot of taxes taken out, and then you know they give it to us in a complicated system. They you know, take out too much, and they give it back to us later, and we're grateful. Then they give us help. They say, well, here's your disability, and God knows what. I mean, like normal money, you know, just working for money doesn't seem to exist anymore. So, um, and we, what we point out is that this is actually a dangerous system to kind of be part of. Actually, there's a real downside to having a regular job with a regular wage. Yeah, lose your job, you lose your insurance because uh, the government's made it so that it's tied to your, your, your job instead of something you carry around with you on your own uh, individ individual purchase. That's yeah. right. People have developed a dependency relationship with mm. employers, very much like what people have you know, uh, developed with the state. And that's only because of intervention. So there are advantages to maintaining your independence from, this, from the systems. There's lots of ways to do that. Establishing your own LLC and becoming a, a consultant, not ramping up your lifestyle to the high point of your income, but always spending at the level of your next second best income choice. And there's a lot of very specific ways that individuals can maintain their freedom and independence, freedom to act and freedom to pursue their own interests throughout their lives without getting kind of stuck into this these nudgy sort of plans, you know, that the state wants for us. I mean, most people, it's really very tragic as soon as they get out of college, you know, they're, they're in a system of dependency and they stay that way forever, you know, so they've got a large student loan, so they've got to get a high paying wage job with all the benefits and the taxes taken out so they can service the loan, then they get married, then they get a huge house and then your, your life's over. There's no more choice left for you. You know, you're stuck. That's not the way freedom's supposed to be. But I'm just, we're just saying that there's ways to at least be aware of what you're getting into when you make these choices and be aware of the costs and be aware of alternative ways of configuring your life that are more uh, personally beneficial for you and more like the freedom people used to have. Sounds like a really inspiring book. I can't wait to read it. Uh, I think we've been talking for almost uh, an hour now, but since this is a podcast on fiction, I think we need to ask a few questions about it <laughs> before we close up. We had a few uh, prepared for you. Uh, yeah, you maybe we said, should start with the first uh, you one said about music uh, is what you're most uh, familiar with. But is there any fiction that has influenced you towards libertarianism or confirmed your libertarianism in any way? Well, I mean, you know my answer to that one. What that's going to be because I'm just like deeply, deeply voted, devoted to uh, the four novels of Garrett Garrett, 
who just had this wild influence on me, both as a, you know, as a stylist and, you know, his stories that he told the way he thinks about the world. I mean, it was, it was very weird. Cause you know, like, he's not a big figure. I don't think in the libertarian world, it's very strange to me. Uh, I mean, like the Cato encyclopedia came out and, and there's no way, I mean, this encyclopedia is like incredibly comprehensive. And there's no way they would cover everything. There's always going to be somebody left out. But I was very sad that the Garrett Garrett was actually left out. I'm not criticizing it because I wouldn't have wanted to be the editor of that thing. But um, but his book, uh, The Driver, of course, which I think is a kind of prototype for uh, Alex Shrugged. And then uh, I love the cinder buggy. You can tell, you can really reveal history and philosophy through fiction in a way that you can't through just straight prose. And I just think he did a really, really brilliant job of it those books had a very powerful influence on me Matt, when did you read them uh, do you know the writer garrett garrett I, uh, yeah i have the books on my shelf i haven't read them yet though okay so i read I think them. yeah i'm sorry i think it was you i i didn't know he had written any fiction until i think it was you who wrote something for yeah i don't know if it was lourockwell.com or mises.org or something I think it was on the Mises blog uh, that you first introduced us to him well but now listen i mean what's interesting to me about that is that but Garrett Garrett himself, his fiction was totally forgotten even in his lifetime. I mean, he started off as like this big fiction writer. He was huge. He was like a best-selling author from like 1922 until about 1927. Uh, he was a jazz-age novelist, you know, celebrating progress, celebrating capitalism, celebrating commerce. Not because that was his purpose, but because that was his outlook, you know what I mean? But then, you know, the whole world blew up at World War II, and nobody remembered a damn thing, you know, uh, from the 20s. All the art and everything was just blown away. And so uh, at the end of World War II, he's still kind of hanging around. He was in America first, or he opposed entry to World War II. And that, just, I guess, in, in the political culture really, you know, harmed him as a, as a, as a writer. And so the 1950s had a tiny, small cadre of fans, but they were all fans for his, his nonfiction. Uh, because all throughout the the 1930s, he was he was denouncing and from the Saturday pages of the Saturday Review, uh, FDR. So he had a lot of fans. And John Chamberlain tells the story. I, you know, sometimes you hear a story and it just affects you for life. But John Chamberlain was a big book reviewer at the time. Knew Garrett Garrett, who again was something of a folk hero in a tiny group of people. And he was talking to him one time, and Garrett said to John Chamberlain, "Did you know I wrote some fiction books?" Uh, like when I was, and he said, never heard of him. He goes, yeah, I'd have, maybe I'll have a look at him sometime. So he gave him uh, harangue and cinder buggy, and that was it. He didn't even have any personal copies of uh, the driver or Satan's bushel. So John Chamberlain, just like a lot of people do when you give him books, he just kind of put it in his pile, and then Garrett died, and uh, and then. Only after Garrett died, John Traven read, I think it was The Cinder Buggy, and he was just blown away. He said, my God, this book is just so, this is a real kick. I love this book. But I even think John Chamberlain himself underestimated the importance of the books. I mean, they're, they're amazing. I far prefer them to his, uh, to his nonfiction works. I mean, they're really treasures, really great classics. I think I kind of feel the same way about Rand in a way. I've been heavily influenced by her philosophy, even though I'm not an objectivist, at least not anymore. But I think her fiction is so powerful, and, and you, you really see uh, like what she intended in her philosophy, you know, portrayed in her novels better than she explained it in her in her nonfiction. There's a lot of interpretations of her nonfiction I think that are you know that don't really capture 
you know, what she portrayed in her novels. Yeah. What do you suppose that is? Is it just, was that just Rand or do you think that's universally true? I mean, is there, is there um, fiction have a certain way of conveying a message that nonfiction can never achieve? I'm not sure. Well, Mises wasn't a fiction author, but I've, uh, I remember Barry Smith has argued that, that uh, Mises, his method at least was, was, uh, you know, very Aristotelian, but he's, he's explained himself as a Kantian in his, in his, uh, methodological works so maybe it's something similar to that where you know Ayn Rand was a novelist first and a philosopher second and she uh she developed her philosophy so she could portray it uh in her novels you know to portray her ideal man and her, you know, her what she thought the world should be like and so I think she was able to uh express you know what she, her ideal you know man ideal society and everything in, in concrete terms better than she could explain it in a in a very abstract uh philosophical arguments and people tended to interpret her more as a utilitarian and, and stuff afterwards you know, in ways that I don't think really fit with her her philosophy. It's too easy, I think, for people who aren't writing, just writing nonfiction, to deal with abstractions and essentially mm-hmm. stuff up that has nothing to do with human reality. Yeah, when you have to uh, put it into concrete terms and portray it, you have to, if you want people to, to read it and not be put off by it, you have to make it realistic yep. and uh, also make it appealing. Yeah. And, and illustrate, uh, you know, the practical consequences of, of things. Yeah, and, and deal with mm-hmm. human action, essentially. I mean, mm-hmm. deal with human motivation and what people do. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because you think about something like socialism, this idea of socialism. Well, it turns out to be nothing that people can actually do. Uh, you can't do socialism any more than I can. Uh, I can't socialize my shoes. I mean, uh, I'm wearing them or you're wearing them. You know, how are you going to? How are you going to socialize my shoes? I mean, they're not reproducible goods. Uh, they have to be owned by one person or another. So, uh, and insofar as you're writing fiction, you're always dealing with what people are actually doing. I mean, you're dealing to some extent, you know, with the things we know, the, the world as, as it is. So I think that must be why fiction tends to reinforce a freedom message more readily, the abstract, meandering wanderings of, of philosophers, economists, and sociologists in, their, in the non, nonfiction uh, work. Yeah, I think it forces you to uh, avoid or uh, what Rand called a floating abstraction. These abstract ideas aren't really tied to reality. You can talk in abstract terms about how this you know, socialist society would work, but then we actually try to tease out how it's actually going to play out in, in the real world. You see how it falls apart. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, I mean, I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed that over the last several years, uh, mainstream film becoming you know, ever more uh, libertarian all the time. That's really exciting to me. I mean, even... And even movies you think are kind of stupid, like Madagascar Three. I mean, it's a, it's a totally fantastic libertarian <laughs> running about the whole the whole thing. You know, they they think they want to get back to the zoo because that's where they're happy. They're on display, where they are making money and they were had stability and comfort. And they go, you know, tr- tremendous effort because they're you know over in Madagascar, or whatever. And they have to go through Europe and go through Europe's most wanted or whatever. And they finally arrive at the zoo and uh, they realize. We don't want to do that. We've we've tasted freedom, the adventure, you know, the the fun and the risk and the excitement of real life. Why do we want to go back into this cage and be on display just in exchange for which we get what stability and food? To hell with that. <laughs> this is the theme, you know. So it's great. It's great stuff. Yeah, it's great to see more of that being portrayed in fiction. I think other than practical businesses that uh, help build alternative institutions. I think uh, portraying like libertarian values in fiction is, would be really important for getting our ideas into the popular culture instead of stuck in academia or uh, within our limited circles. I'll leave with you on that, Jeffrey. And I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of novels right now. 
Uh, people have submitted a lot, a lot of great stuff, and I've got them out to readers and things to get them evaluated. But I want Laissez Faire to be a, you know, as we develop, a, a main publisher of, of of fiction. Just because I, I I totally agree with you. This is the art of fiction is a way that uh, libertarian intellectuals can leave a really big and permanent mark, mm-hmm. um, world and indirectly in people's lives. Well, it's great to hear that laissez-faire books will be publishing more fiction in the future. You recently published a libertarian thriller novel by a new author named John Hunt. Yeah. Uh, you released it for free on the laissez-faire uh, books blog in serialized installments uh, and, and then made it available to the club members and then also for sale. That's a complete book to everybody else. Uh, how was that experience? And uh, do you plan on doing something like that again? Yeah, we loved it. That was really exciting. Um, and thank you so much for a live blog. Uh, along with us. Yeah, and that's going to be one model we're going to be using, and we're going to republish some of the fiction works of Rosewilder uh, Lane coming forward, which are just not in print, and nobody's even heard about him anymore, even though she was this great fiction writer, you know. And we've got other new fiction that are, that uh, that we're reviewing right now, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll release in new and creative ways going forward. I mean, club members, the club, the club model is very interesting, because what what people are subscribing to is a kind of a curation service. They, they, they want to know what do we think are the important books? What are the benefits from, to them from reading them? By subscribing to the club, you can get focused in your reading agenda and be inspired to read. And this is the number one comment I've heard. It was like, well, I didn't want to tell anybody this, but I stopped reading books. When the internet came along, all I've been doing seems like all I do is check my email and read my Facebook page, you know, and I, I'm poverty as a result. So I wanted the club to inspire people, but that's, you know, I talked about how the commercial model reveals things to you. I had underestimated the importance of this curation aspect. People are really grateful for it. But what's cool about it is it allows us to take publishing risks. So if you're a member of the club, you know, everybody who's a member immediately gets everything we publish, just, you know, immediately on their device. So we can take, another. You know, we don't have to worry about this kind of one-off sales. Like other publishers, mm-hmm. worry, like every single book has to be its own like miniature business, you know, and that's a quite a burden actually for any publisher. But with the club model, we can release things even if we think they might be a little bit commercially risky otherwise. And because we just think they're good. Even if we couldn't persuade people to buy it just as a one-off copy. Uh, we think it's good enough to release as part of your subscription and you know, give it a chance. Speaking of uh, curation as a service, uh, people have been wondering uh, with the new digital uh, you know, publishing age, with the publishers uh, having so much trouble you know, adapting to the, new, uh, to the requirements of the new business models they need, they need to adopt, you know, what will happen? Who will become the new gatekeepers? How are we going to find the good books out of all these countless books that are being published, not only by publishers now, but also by authors, all these self-published authors? There's so many books to read. So much of his crap. You know, how do we find the good stuff? And that's what uh, it's a problem. So I think publishers like Blazer Fair Books can step into that void and provide a way for people to find the stuff they like and they want to read. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I've, I find myself always attentive to these things. I mean, I get overwhelmed sometimes at just the number of manuscripts. I mean, there's just not enough hours in the day to keep up with everything. But I'm hoping that the club is going to become like right now, it seems very much kind of centralized with just me and. Like I'm doing a lot of work, and Doug's doing a lot of work. And we have a few other authors, but I'm hoping is that the model is going to expand, you know, and grow, and become, you know, a larger and larger network uh, with ever more sectors within it going forward. That's my prediction. About yeah. so you can hi- hire more editors and have different imprints work, uh, covering different you know subject matter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see the whole thing become really scalable upwards and not so dependent upon you know my own uh, and Doug's own you know 
skills of reviewing things. So, but you know, it's funny we're we're just right out of the box here. You know, we opened up in March, not even a year old, and I find myself grateful every day that we're in the black. <laughs> you know, we. <laughs> I mean, bleeding red all over the place, it was catastrophic. You know, after the first mm -hmm. months after I'd been hired, you know, the accountants were saying, uh, hey, uh, when, are you gonna, when are you guys going to get this laissez-faire books thing going? Because this is a calamity for our balance sheets. I mean, you guys are just squandering. You know? <laughs> so it was kind of scary. You know, that, hey, Amazon went for years without making a profit. <laughs> yeah. Probably <laughs> not to uh, you know, have to float bonds or anything. <laughs> <laughs> We're going mm. back to venture capitalists or anything. Mm. Yeah, we're, well, now we're in, we're in the black and we're moving. And we seem to be going the right direction. I think in this world of commerce, all you really want is evidence of us every day. And that's what we strive to do. We, we just want to see a little, little signs of, of progress going every day. When we see things going the other direction, we try to figure out why and, and try to fix them. So it's fun. It's like, it's like, a, like a fun game that you play you know, every day. And I, when I was a young man, I was involved in the commercial world, uh, you know, worked for you know, lots of different little places, paying my way through school or whatever like that. So it's really fun for me to, you know, get back into it and experience that ethos, excitement, that sense of uncertainty, you know, the, the, it really is a, it's just like a Madagascar 3. It's, it's a risky, fun adventure. You know? mm -hmm. Okay, uh, maybe just one or two more questions to wrap things up. Can you give us a scoop on anything? Do you have any new, any big new releases or anything? Any other exciting projects coming up that you can talk about? To give our listeners some like a sneak peek. Yeah. So let's see. Um, oh yeah, I've got a about two weeks. I'm releasing a uh, a book on business cycles by one of the many successors, Adam Smith at, at Glasgow. That was written in 1933 in the Austrian tradition, and I think it's the best presentation of the Austrian theory of the business cycle I'd ever read. Uh, mm -hmm. Nobody's ever heard of this book, even that he was a, a big shot. And I think the very existence of this book alone, you know, should inspire people to start rethinking our own kind of casual historiography of the Austrian school. I'm excited about that one. That's in two weeks. And then... What's the author's name and the title of the book? Ellis? I'm going to wait. Go see it. It's a couple of weeks. Plus, I might mispronounce it. It gets yeah. detail wrong because that is so okay. out of me. But I, it was mind-blowing. And I think that's the first of many works. I mean, there's a lot of great literature out there. You know, the whole trick is try, trying to find the good stuff and and try to overcome, you know, the state's restrictions on, on distributing it. Rosewater Lane, we have some, I mentioned some of her fiction coming coming out. And... Uh, H.L. Mencken. Mm, gotta, you know, another thing we're trying to do is involve a really wide range of uh, people to write introductions and forwards and uh, frame this stuff up for people. Uh, we're also starting a new service, I think probably next week, where we're providing detailed sort of abstracts of the actual book. So not just a description, but a, but a real attempt to reduce the whole contents of the book to like three or four pages for easy reference before you read and after. I think that's a major aspect. Of is, it, is it kind of a Cliff Notes thing or more condensed than that? Or? Yeah, it'll be a little more condensed than a, than a Cliff Notes, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I guess you, people call them executive summaries. I hate that. Oh. <laughs> executive, so I don't have to read. You know? so, <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is just people to, um, to give some grounding in the contents of the book so people don't feel lost. Help guide the reader and what you think. Kind of like you're, you're curating not only uh, books, but curating the content of the book now, too. Then, yeah, yeah, that's the next in a way that was hammered out late last week because that's what we've heard from the customers. 
Uh, they want to have more because they find that, you know, going into a book, they're not entirely sure what's in the book. You know, they feel like there's an element of kind of hacking through weeds to get through the thing. So we want to clear the paths for them. And then after they finish the book, they want to find, they want to have quick references to go back and recall some of the points that they might have missed uh, and use them later. So that, that's where these, I don't know, like miniature study guides, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I don't know how that's going to work out for fiction, by the way. I hadn't really mm -hmm. thought yet, but this is... To put spoiler alerts in there. So that, yeah, so that, I guess that's, that's enough of... Oh, and, then, and then I should also tell you that I think that this multimedia ebook may be released tomorrow. This is the one where, you know, I'm like looking at my iPad, I'm offline, and I can click and see me giving a short talk about the chapter before every chapter before you read the chapter that is mind-blowing and this will be available to the uh with the gold club uh, gold members for the club right yeah. club members which i forgot now what the price are but we have several levels like silver you, know, you get the books you get the summaries you get all these things and then you bump up a level then you get all the audiobooks and then now the multimedia books and we're doing one audiobook a month it's kind of crazy i mean it's, it's a lot of work yeah. a lot of work is very relentless but you know, like i say we're you know the the model seems to be working so I feel yeah, it's great for me. You know, I've got a test. Yeah. Am I am I am I doing something good for the world? Well, yeah, the balance sheet uh, so far says yes. So that's very. <laughs> well, it's great to hear, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on this interview. Really appreciate uh, you talking to us. Maybe before we go, could you tell our listeners where they can find you online, like Facebook and and Google Plus and yeah. Twitter, that kind of thing? Yeah, so you can just look me up. I still have my own personal account on Facebook. I haven't moved over to like. Public figure stat. I can't. Yeah, <laughs> a fan page or whatever they call it now. <laughs> Looking up on Twitter, I've been doing a lot more tweeting, trying to uh, provide unique content there, and uh, and of course my entire archive uh, since I came to Lazy Fair, which is now by now probably close to three hundred articles. Uh, are, you can find them at laissezfaire uh, lfb.org, and of course I would. Really, be very happy if any of the listeners to this podcast uh, join the club, as I as I always am. And, <laughs> and thank you, Jeffrey, for having me. I really appreciate your patience and listening to me go on this long. Oh, we love <laughs> it, this it. It didn't require any <laughs> patience at all. Uh, I will have links to all that stuff in the show notes. If you can, maybe you can send some of them to us just to make sure we get them right. And I think your Twitter handle was is it Jeffrey Day Tucker? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Let's talk again. I will. We will. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye -bye. Take care. Well, we hope you enjoyed our interview with Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, we thought it went pretty well and uh, is really, really uh, informative and interesting, entertaining. What do you think, Matthew? Yeah, like I said, he's always interesting to listen to. Uh, easy guy to interview. Ask him a question and he's got so many ideas. He just uh, carries the interview. We can kind of sit back and relax. That's a shame we couldn't uh, you know, keep on going. We could easily have done so. but. I think so. I think we've kept y'all long enough. We've been going on for well over an hour and 20 minutes now, so let's wrap things up. So you can read the show notes for this episode at prometheus-unbound.org slash P-U-P-003. And to find out more about this podcast, visit prometheus-unbound.org slash podcast, where you'll also find links to our Google+, Twitter, and Facebook pages, our email newsletter, our podcast-only RSS feed, and links to our show, 
and all the major podcast directories and apps. You can listen to our show on iTunes, Miro, Stitcher, TuneIn, BlackBerry, Windows Phone, and a lot more. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us feedback. You can send us voicemail feedback by calling 225-257-9596 or using the Google Voice widget on the website. Or you can email us at feedback at prometheus-unbound.org. This podcast is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash Prometheus Unbound to sign up for a free 30-day trial membership. By doing so, you'll be helping to support this podcast and you can download a free audiobook.